We are talking about jealousy this morning, and you can open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapters 18 and 19. And uh, if you're just joining us in this series from 1 Samuel or you missed a week or two, uh, let's kind of set the scene of what has happened and is happening here in 1 Samuel. And I'm going to kind of summarize these chapters for us, but you can sort of follow along in your Bibles and through the text. But David just finished killing Goliath, as Thomas talked about last week, and Saul is there to witness it. And Saul's like, you know, who is this dude that just came out of nowhere and defeated the almighty Goliath? And David becomes just the man. And Saul loves him at first because he's helping bring security to Saul's kingdom. And so Saul gives him high rank in his administration and in the military. And David is a huge benefit to Saul, both uh, personally and for national security. But as David becomes more and more popular and successful, and as it becomes more and more apparent that David is God's chosen and anointed leader, something begins to shift in Saul. And he begins to allow envy and jealousy take hold of his mind, take root in his heart, and he becomes increasingly jealous and suspicious of David. And it spirals out of control to the point where Saul attempts to kill David, not once, not twice, not three times, but to my count, four times in these two chapters. He tries to kill him indirectly by sending him out to war and into battle and into dangerous situations. And then, you know, he tries to kill him quite directly and leaves no question about it by throwing spears at him. Uh, it's pretty direct. And verse 12 of chapter 18 offers a, just a summary of all this and what's happening in Saul's heart where it says that Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David but had departed from Saul. Saul is terrified of David's success and anointing because he perceives it as a threat. And his solution is to just get rid of David. I mean, as these chapters and the following ones show, Saul just becomes obsessed and consumed with killing David. It's all he's worried about. And because of this, David has to go into hiding as he's tipped off by Saul's son and David's best friend, Jonathan. So in a few weeks, I'm going to talk about all we learn about David and the way he handles all of this and how he experiences God quite literally in the valley of the shadow of death. But today I want to examine the fall of Saul and how to avoid the sin snowball in our lives. So I want to talk about lessons from the story of Saul, how to avoid uh, the sin snowball, or we might say Saul's sin snowball. So say that 10 times fast. Saul's sin snowball. Saul's sin, no. uh, you know, we maybe tend to think of bigger sins, like you know, sexual immorality or financial impropriety or some addiction when we think of kind of the sin snowball spiraling out of control. 
But the Bible's pretty clear that today's topic is actually a really big deal. So much so that the writer James in chapter 3 of his book of the Bible calls envy and selfish ambition unspiritual, demonic, and evil. It's pretty intense. So we better learn how to rule it in our hearts. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, the Bible describes sin as crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but it says you must rule over it. And when we let a jealous thought or suspicion enter our minds and we give it free reign, we let it just begin to take over, we begin to ruminate on, on bitterness, then that sin just begins to grow and snowball out of control, take root in our hearts and minds. Right, as the saying goes, sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, charge you more than you want to pay. It's the sin snowball, and it's lethal when it comes to sins like bitterness and envy and jealousy, suspicion. In chapter 19 of 1 Samuel illustrates this just so tragically because it ends with Saul essentially going mad. The chapter ends by, with Saul lying naked on the ground all day and all night after the Lord prevents him from killing David once again. So how can we avoid the Saul snowball here? How can we fight the sins of Saul? Well, I want to focus on two main things which are very interrelated and similar and two things that if Saul had done or embraced, then his story would have turned out completely different. So the number one lesson here from Saul is that we need to choose joy over jealousy, meaning we need to rejoice in the success of others. Why is this so hard? I mean, Saul should have been the happiest guy around. In chapter 19, verse 4, Jonathan says, Let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you. And what, has he, what he has done has benefited you greatly. Right? And he points out to his dad in verse 5 that at first Saul was rejoicing in all the things that David had done. But Saul completely spiraled as he let envy and jealousy snowball. I mean, to the point where he's trying to kill his son-in-law, the best friend of his son, the husband of his daughter. I mean, he had something beautiful in front of him. He had a loyal son-in-law, a friend of the family, a talented and anointed musician, a skilled warrior. I mean, just a great blessing to Saul. And instead of rejoicing in it as a part of God's plan and provision for Israel, Saul rejects it. He tries to get rid of it because of his jealousy. I mean, Saul and David, they could have been the dream team. But Saul's fear and insecurity and jealousy wouldn't allow it. If Saul had just, you know, learned to accept God's plan and to rejoice in the success of another leader, he would have experienced freedom and joy rather than bondage and bitterness. And it's why sin just sucks so much, right? It binds us up instead of frees us. 
And yet we continually choose sin over this holy freedom. That's why 1 Corinthians 3.3 calls jealousy a sign of worldliness. Right? It doesn't belong in God's kingdom because at its core, jealousy is just a rejection of God's plans. Because when we're jealous or envious, we're essentially saying, you know, I don't want that person being fill-in-the-blank, popular or successful. Or we're saying, I don't want that person doing, you know, leading that group or ministry. Or I don't want that person having that house, that kind of influence, that boyfriend or girlfriend, that job, instead of just trusting God that it's up to him to figure those things out even judge those things in the end, but it's not our place. We are only responsible for what we're called to do. And I admit this can be really, really hard. And that's why I and we need to read God's word regularly and and know his heart to guard ourselves from these kinds of attitudes that will destroy families and communities and workplaces and relationships. And I'm just going to be honest. I'm going to confess my sin uh, here before you. I don't mind. You know, sometimes I struggle with, you know, the large platforms or, or influence God seems to give other leaders. And, you know, I know preachers or churches who have really fancy setups, and they got wonderful graphics and awesome media in their sermons, and they got teams of researchers to help them write their messages, and, you know, therefore they have these great YouTube channels and following, and maybe they even end up on Christian TV and have a huge podcast following or whatever it is. And I'm sometimes tempted to think, well, what about me, Lord? I work really hard on my messages, Lord. Are you paying attention? Why am I not getting any recognition? And I might be tempted to become a little bitter, a little envious, maybe a little insecure. The sins of Saul. But we need to fight those feelings and remember that it's not about us. And these sins stem from when we turn inward on ourselves and we start worrying about what others are doing, which is something God is not calling us to do. I think if we listen to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit would just say, stop it. That's not your job. Jesus teaches this lesson in this great story, right? When he and Peter are walking along the beach in John 21, if you know the story, and Jesus is telling Peter how he's going to have to suffer for the gospel. His life is not going to be easy. In fact, it's going to end in a lonely martyrdom, a horrific death rather than fame and honor and crowds. And Peter looks back and he sees John following them. And he says to Jesus, well, what about him? Essentially saying, like, he'll have to suffer too, right, Jesus? Not just me. I mean, John's not going to get off easy, is he? And Jesus' response is just so good. And I think about it all the time. Here's what he says. He says, what's it to you? Follow me. What's it to you, Peter? Don't worry about it. Jesus essentially says, who cares about John? That's for me to worry about. You follow me and let me take care of everyone else. It's not yours 
to worry about, Peter. The words of Jesus just really cut to the heart here. I think of these words where Jesus says, are you envious? Because I am generous to others. Church, we need to rejoice in the success of others and when God is being generous to others. And don't hold back your words. James 4.17 tells us that if we know something is right to do and we don't do it, then it's actually sin. If we know we should be affirming someone, that we should be encouraging them, we should be complimenting them, making them look good in front of others, that we should be highlighting their good work, and we don't because we're jealous or insecure, think they don't deserve it, they haven't earned it, they've only been here two years, I've been here 25 years. It's wrong. That's sin. That's not the way of the kingdom. But when we're secure in Christ, when we understand, as Thomas taught us last week, that we're not the main character of our story, God is, then we can become free from these self-interests, and we can allow instead blessing to flow through us. You know, I've been in situations or uh, on staffs or, or teams where there was jealousy and suspicion and not giving each other the benefit of the doubt and, you know, sort of a competition to be the favorite with the boss or to be second in command or, you know, to trying to take command even maybe where if someone was complimented in front of others, you know, the rest of the, of the team just kind of remained intentionally silent, not wanting to give the person too much glory or credits. And it's awful, right? I mean, it's, to use a very fancy theological term, it's, it's icky, like, it just feels yucky inside when you're a part of that kind of environment. That's why the Bible calls it an evil attitude. And as a staff here, uh, something we practice is that every week we start off our staff meeting by asking, what can we celebrate? And it's an opportunity to compliment and to encourage one another about what they did well, to affirm the gifts in each other so that we make sure we're not holding back those words, that we're learning to be generous with our words. And so we can all practice this in our workplaces, in our homes, in our circle of friends, to choose joy and rejoicing for others instead of jealousy. Rejoice in the the success of others. Avoid the sins of Saul. Be generous with your words. Exalt others, even if it comes at your own expense. And I promise it will be good for your heart and your soul. It will free you up inside. And if Saul had done this, if he had been secure enough to help David thrive, man, he would have lived such a blessed life instead of a tragic one. I mean, the irony is he would have gone down as a great king in Israel, which is what he really wants and why he feels threatened if he had just been willing to share the spotlight with David. So what keeps us from doing this more, even though we know it's good for us? Why is jealousy, envy, and bitterness so prominent, even in the church and among believers? 
Well, most of it stems, I think, from insecurity. And so the second application point and, and also kind of closing challenge here is to replace insecurity with indifference, which I'll explain. At the root of, of jealousy and envy is really just our insecurity, not being secure with who we are in Christ and who God has called us and others to be and what he has called us and others to do and just rejoicing in that plan. So uh, let me just explain to you Saul's insecurity here. One of the, the turning points is, is here in verse 7 of chapter 18. And apparently this song has been circulating that says this, that says they sang and they danced, that Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. So this song had been circulating around Israel. And it says that this made Saul really angry, that this displeased Saul. And Saul thought to himself, you know, They've credited David with tens of thousands, but poor old me with only thousands. He's like, what's up with that? What about all the things I've done? And it's Saul's insecurity that causes him to take something that's quite innocent and playful, this song. And he begins to ruminate on it, then begins to fill him with bitterness and jealousy. But it didn't have to be that way. Because that's actually not what's happening here. If you read Hebrew poetry and parallelism, you kind of know that what this is really saying is just that Saul and David together have slain thousands. That 10,000 is just considered a parallel of 1,000. And we know this from reading other scriptures in the Bible. The most famous would be Psalm 91 verse 7. Right, that says, a thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but destruction will not come near you. Or Micah 6, 7, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of olive oil? You see how it just means lots and lots for both? It's just a parallelism. It's just a poetic uh, kind of idea. And people in Israel would have known this, but Saul is so insecure that he takes it literally, and he begins to ruminate on it, and he begins to become jealous, right? It's not literally 1,000 fall on this side, 10,000 fall on that side, right? It's not literally 1,000 rams here and 10,000 rivers of olive oil. It just means lots and lots. They've both slain thousands. It was equal praise to Saul and David. But because of his insecurity, Saul turns this very innocent, playful song into a snowball of jealousy. And it begins to drive him crazy. And it's too bad. It didn't have to be that way. And sometimes we see this, you know, in the church. I've been, a, you know, in places sometimes where somebody forgot to publicly thank someone when they were doing a list of thank yous and due to the person's insecurity they, they leave the church they get mad right or they're left out of a highlight video that has a bunch of leaders in it and and they weren't in it and and what happens is suspicion and jealousy kind of take over and they begin to ruminate on this thoughts and they take something that's innocent and they turn it into bitterness and jealousy and it just begins to snowball 
out of control the way it does here for Saul. And so we need to be so careful with these feelings. Because this is not what God wants for you. He wants you to walk in freedom. Rejoicing when others get the spotlight, even when you don't. Right? Being secure that you're doing what God wants you to do. And who gets the credit and recognition is up to God. Don't let your insecurity lead to a snowball of sin. But instead, choose indifference. And what I mean by that, I'm just using a term from Ignatius of Loyola, is this holy indifference which is the freedom to accept whatever happens, to accept any outcome. Holy indifference is coming to the place where we will be okay with obscurity or notoriety, whether in plenty or in need, whether we receive credit for what we've done or no one notices, where no matter what, we would say, blessed be your name. Holy indifference is a kind of holy freedom where we are so consumed with God getting the glory that we are free from all else and all, all other motivations in our decision-making. And that indifference will outshine our insecurities. And church, I want you and I want us to walk in that kind of holy freedom. But we do have to work at it. Let's go back to where we started as the band comes up. Right? That sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Learn from Saul's failure. His whole life and legacy could have been completely different if he had just been honest about his feelings. If he had confessed them, confessed his weakness, if he had exposed them and repented and decided to fight the sin snowball. So let's not let sin rule over us. Let's choose joy over jealousy, rejoicing in the success of others, being generous in our hearts, and choosing holy indifference over insecurity, saying, God, I trust you and your plans. And I'm not going to be concerned with my own feelings or insecurity. I'm just going to do what you asked me to do, God. And I'm going to leave all the rest up to you. Don't you want to live like that to be able to do that? that kind of holy freedom. So let's close by asking the Lord for that freedom to unlock our hearts. So would you stand with me? And then Paul will come at the end and he'll give you instruction on how to receive prayer this morning if you want to stay and to pray and he'll close us with a benediction. But let's just close by asking God for this freedom in our hearts, asking it to reign in our church and in our community that we would learn these lessons from Saul and that we would free our hearts.